economics of football seems to be an unlikely mainstream success for a podcast. Like, why do you think the show has been such a success? Um, so, so one, of the, one of the feedback comments I had was that it, it shouldn't work because I've got no interest in football and I've got no interest in finance. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow it, it, it seems to... Uh, it, it, it's, uh, we, we go back to the Ruthian principles of inform, educate and entertain. Now, you know, I, I can provide the um, educational side of things in the sense that I, I can structure the the financial issues. Um, Kevin provides the entertainment as as a he's a stand up comedian. He he is a presenter, he is a writer, and he he frames the show. Um, and, and I just talk about spreadsheets. And <laughs> we, we've got the the information in in the sense that football fans are unusual stakeholders in the sense that. If, if I'm going to, um, I'm going to show my middle-class credentials here. If, if I'm going to Waitrose to get, my, to get my groceries, I don't give a damn how much money Waitrose is, is making or losing. I'm not interested in the average wages. Um, and also, I don't particularly care if they make more or less money than their rivals. But football is tribal. So if, if I put out information as I did last week um, in respect of Sunderland, the Newcastle fans jump upon it. The Sunderland fans jump upon it if they hate the owners and they will try to find the positives from it if they are, are backing the owners. So it, it's actually a reflection of this, this tribalism that we have within the sport in that anything to do with the football club can be used as an opportunity to either be an extended form of cheerleading um, in the eyes of the beholder, or uh, to back up the, the perception that a particular aspect of the club is bad or good or indifferent. Um, and people ha have bought into that. Um, we've, it has been far more successful than any of the three of us ever envisaged. Um, and I genuinely don't know why. Uh, but you know, the, yeah, we, we're getting twenty-five to thirty thousand downloads per show, um, which, which for a you know, for a very niche show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and my understanding is that it is listened to um, within the industry an awful lot as well. So you know, I, I was I was amazed that you know, we, 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 well, we we've had guests on the show, even though we never anticipated having guests because we we, we thought we'd be dead within. Yeah, we thought we'd abandon it within two or three weeks. Um, yeah, the fact that I was contacted by the manager of a of a uh, League Two, League One club says, "Can I ask you about this and that?" And then I said, "Would you mind coming on the show?" Fully expecting to say, "Sorry, mate, you know, I, I can't be seen to be saying any certain things." And this was uh, this was David Artell of Crew, and he proved to be an incredibly articulate, incredibly um, well thought through. Uh, commentator on on the position of the game at present we've had neil doncaster who's head of the spfl we've had players uh we've had agents and so on and so yeah. we, we're not we're not going after the traditional audience you know it, it's uh, it's it's not and you know, I'm, I'm, kevin day uh, because he spent 12 years working on match of the day too um you know he's got lots of contacts within the industry he says well we, we could get gordon strachan but it, it doesn't really sort of fit in with the ethos of the show, which is 
two old blokes who who are genuine football romantics. So, uh, you know, Kevin Kevin puts his political credentials nails those to the show far more than I do. I, I just tend to uh, I, I try to be as objective as possible without ever ever hiding where where my views lie. Um, and and that's the only that's the only negative cri- criticism we've had. Um, you know, somebody one of the latest comments is it would be a great show if it wasn't it didn't involve two woke Romaniacs. Um, but, <laughs> well, this is, um, if, you, if, if it's a show with a stand-up comedian and a professor from a red brick university, you're going to go a long way to fight non-Romaniacs. That's right. <laughs> um, but but the fact that people are prepared to put comments on that, and yeah, you know, and, and I did a show all about Brexit, um, uh, and I. I I, I try to be as, you know, my, my objective is to be objective. Um, and, and I think that's appreciated that it is, it is non-partisan as, as, as best as we can be. And, and even the people that don't like hearing what we, we say, I, I think they appreciate that. Do you think there's a, a case that in the post-1990, sort of post-Nick Hornby, you know, the, the expansion of higher education and more football fans are going to university now, there are more books read about football than ever before, do you think that there's a growing audience of people for whom football is not just something that they watch as a spectacle on a screen or in a ground, but actually they're interested in all of the stuff that goes around it, whether it's finance or whether it's you know, making sense of what, what a transfer figure actually is? Do you think there are a growing number of people who are educated sufficiently uh, or have the knowledge to be able to understand the notion of football? Uh, are these an example of the post fan or an example of that post-1990 new football fan? Um, I, I, I think you're right, but but also bef- before 1990, it didn't matter because we, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have the uh, the the, the 24/7 uh, devouring of data and information, um, and, and therefore I, I think the two things have coincided. We, we couldn't we couldn't have the show without Hornby, and we couldn't have the show without the internet, um, but, be, because that has created um, a, a vehicle. Um, for con- consumption, you know, and ultimately this 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 is this is a consumption issue. Uh, so c- certainly, I've I've been surprised. I mean, I, I teach a uh, I teach on the football MBA, and, and I sort of I, I I really wanted that's the reason I wanted to come to Liverpool because um, I'd heard about the course, and I'm, I'm you know I'm football mad, and I felt that there was a the way that the course was, which was a much broader than the way I tend to do it, you know, I'm I'm trying to give people an understanding of uh, of club finance as opposed to sort of a more uh, yeah, a, a broader perspective. Um, that uh, that that has triggered something um, because I then managed to persuade the university to to run it as a as an undergrad course, thinking I, I might get you know twenty people who like messing around with spreadsheets and football clubs but now we're up to about 140 150 um and, and the quality of the work um from the students is is off the scale um and, and I've, I've sort of trying to work out why and, and I've, I've i sort of you know i have zoom meetings with students and saying how's it going and, and they say and yeah you know, I'm, I'm i'm very fortunate here this is their favorite module and it's nothing to do with me. I know it's nothing to do with me because that's basically the end of the day, I'm a middle-aged accountant. Um, <laughs> but... you, should get a, you should get a T-shirt with that on. That's your, that's your get out of jail free card, isn't it? I'm a middle-aged accountant. <laughs> um, be- because 
there's an emotional investment in the work that they're doing. And as they keep coming back to me and saying, well, I want to find out because it's my club. And also when I go home, I can now tell my dad or I can now go and tell my sister that goes to matches with me loads of stuff about the club, which they weren't aware of. And now I can now articulate that. So, so you know, the quality of the work that we've done because of COVID-19 um, originally they had to do a two and a half thousand word assignment and it was a two hour exam. I just said, Let, let's ditch the exam. Let's, let's, uh, and we'll do a 4,000 word assignment. And I thought I've got, you know, I could be moaning about, you know, having to do extra, uh, extra writing. And to get the feedback was actually we would have preferred if we could have written even more. So um, it, it, there is clearly an, an interest. And, and I think it's because of the unique position that football plays in, uh, in, in domestic culture, in, in European fan culture. Um, that as a fan, I take pride in my club. I want to hold the owners to account. And, and something such as this allows me to have, have a toolkit where I can now say that looks good. There's there's something there which doesn't quite add up, um, and I think people quite enjoy the fact that they they perceive themselves as being the football finance expert in their household, amongst their peer group. When they go to the pub, they now get asked the questions, and uh, we've we've been we've been very fortunate just to sort of be you know ride, riding that particular wave. There's a very interesting point there about the democratization of data around football, isn't there? Is that between performance data, you know, I listened to a, a, one of the Celtic podcasts, the Celtic Underground, and there's a lad called Mark Cooper, uh, who lives in Buenos Aires. He just happens to be a Celtic fan who lives in South America, and he scouts, and he has all the different kind of scouting platforms, and he, he has the data, and he's able to articulate that data in a, in a really interesting way. And what you do with football finance is, is about the democratization of that what used to be old closed networks about opening up the stuff that you had to be a gatekeeper to get access to yeah I, I think I think you're right I mean if, if if I've got any talent it's that I've got no talent and, and therefore um, you know I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm, I'm working with uh, very uh, gifted academics and I'm not you know I'm, I'm a 2-2 student um and therefore i have to work harder to because i don't understand stuff very well myself if i if i can explain something to myself in a simple form it means that i can therefore ex expand it to an audience in a simple form and, and it is that democratization and the certainly the feedback that we're getting from both the show and the book is uh it is you've you've made it understandable, and and part of that is having Kevin there because we we've, we've tried to sort of do the sort of the you know, the Mel Smith and the Griff Reese Jones roles <laughs> between yeah. us, literally, you yeah, know, yeah. two old blokes sort of asking each other, you know, one of them's asking the questions over over a pint, um, and 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 it's worked, even though we don't quite know why it has worked. Yeah, you know, we we wouldn't be getting the numbers um uh in terms of the, the downloads which which we're delighted about um yeah th there was never any intention for this to be a success or to make money which it doesn't do anyway um or anything of that nature uh, it's one of the things that you've taught me in my listening to the podcast i listen to both of them every week or since they've gone two a week and, and from your book is and i say this to dan parnell uh your colleague 
uh, outgoing chairman of the collective a lot is it, it's taught me just how the sheer volume of money that is wasted in football and as an Irish Catholic man of a certain age it seems a, a very lapsed and probably atheist Catholic a bit like yourself it, it's still there's enough of residual Catholicism there for me to think that it's quite sinful what goes on in football do you think it's to do with the sheer kind of telephone numberization of transfer fees and um, that we now know how much Raiola and you know, and and and, this, and Mendes and the super agents get that people have suddenly become interested in trying to find out where their money is going. Yes, because that there is still a mentality amongst football fans that we pay your wages, and and therefore you are beholden to us. Um, and as a consequence of that, if you see telephone numbers going out in terms of you know, I always like to quote the yeah the eight hundred and twenty-seven million pounds paid to banks by Manchester United since know, it was yeah. acquired by the Glazers. And people are going, well, that's crazy because that's more than they paid for the club. And I go, yeah, yeah, but yeah, let, let's, let, let's, follow the, let, let's follow the crumb trail back here. Um, you know, Ed Woodward, where does he come from? He comes from an investment bank. Um, let, let's take a look at the audit fees paid to Manchester United's auditors. Who did Ed Woodward used to play for? Oh, blimey, he used, to, he used to go and work for exactly the same firm. You know, and, and you, you follow that and actually you realise, just like all other industries, it's very much network-driven, uh, things of this nature. Um, and, and I think there is an element of, of a slight element of guilt being a football fan. We're, we're conscious that we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on, on this game. And in an ideal world, that money's going to good causes. And, and then you see... Uh, you know, you, you you see players with their camouflaged Range Rovers and <laughs> excess, and I think that's a real shame because, of course, the the media focus is all on that. And you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to to meet a few players and teach a few players, and I've got to be honest, every single one of them has been just really nice young men, and that, that yeah, because they. The, the perception of them is that they are commodities um, and that's that's the way that they are treated by the press that's the way that they're treated by fans and, and that's the way that they are treated by clubs and I think part of the reason why there's been um, a breakdown of um, a willingness to accept pay cuts as a result of COVID-19 is simply because there is no trust between the players and their employers because so many of them have been made promises historically, which have not been fulfilled, which have been broken out of convenience. Um, yeah, the, the players have been traded as if they are commodities. And, and, and I listen to a lot of, uh, uh, I, I listen to a regular podcast called Crime in Sport uh, from the US, which is normally sort of two and a half hour to three hour takedown of, of an individual who has, who has you know, had, uh, misconduct of various forms. And it's even more accentuated over there. Yeah. That, that these these are not people. Um, so the, the numbers, uh, and there's, there's also working class envy in in these numbers, because every football fan um, takes the view of, well, you know, I, I could, you know, I, I was all right when I was a kid. You know, I, I, perhaps if I'd spent a bit more time, yeah. You know, and, and I say it to myself, you know, if if I wasn't scared of heading the ball, you know, I, I could have been a professional footballer. You know, but if you take a look at any footballer who does get to be a professional from the age of eight to 18, you know, or if not longer, they have made huge sacrifices. Yeah. You know, they have been complete. And the, 
the rejection rate in that industry and and, and i always defend footballers wages because of this they say well yeah we, they get paid more than nurses um i say yeah well, that that doesn't mean that that footballers are overpaid it means that nurses are probably underpaid in terms of the way that we value their contributions to society um but 99% of footballers are unpaid because you know you and i you know a few years ago we, we were playing down the parks and we we were paying for the privilege um and i think that's what people forget See, in any industry um and i've had this discussion with kevin you know he said oh, i think they are overpaid said, so, well hold on you know you're a you're a professional presenter um you're not paid the same as anton deck you're not paid the same as you know some of the, the you know sign fields in the states but it, it doesn't mean that you're not as good it's just that it, it, it's market forces and what what we tend to find is that to get a one percent increase in in performance you've got to pay 20 percent more in wages because the the divisions are so narrow and i suppose philosophically it does go back to the uneconomically goes back to like no, sorry, there is nothing new in it really, is that you go back to Hayek, you go back to neoliberal economics, you go back to Chicago School, all that kind of stuff, and you see that it's, like, it is, it is, it could be, it's even Marxist, isn't it? It's about understanding the value of something from an economic standpoint. What are people willing to pay for, 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 for a certain product or someone who could deliver a certain service? Yes, and, and, and the reason why footballers' wages are so high, it's not wage-driven, it's not cost-driven, it's income-driven. Yeah. So if, if we've got if we've got Sky willing to pay, uh, you know, nine million pounds for a three year, sorry, nine billion pounds or the TV companies, nine billion pounds for a three year deal. Well, everybody knows that money's come into the game. Um, that money's going to concentrate at the top level. So therefore, to be at the top level, you've got to employ the, the top. Uh, top performers and we now have the money to do so so if, uh, if if the next set of tv deals is halved in value then players wages will halve so it, it is being it's being driven by income and the fact that as far as um the sporting success is concerned you, you will have a football club which might have four or five hundred employees but actually everybody's wages and everybody's future and you know I, i'm talking as a brighton fan we're in danger of being relegated um it, the one thing which has not been said is that 200 people will lose their job yeah, yeah. If, if my side gets relegated and now and you know if, if you talk to a chief executive says you know it's either us or norwich or Villa or Bournemouth, somebody's going to be making a lot of redundancies. As a chief executive, my responsibility is to protect people's jobs. So that means renegotiating a contract with a player to give him an extra 10 grand a week, and that saves 200 jobs. Surely there's nothing wrong with paying that player an additional wage. One of the things that I, over the last couple of weeks, one of the eye-watering things from this week's show, I think, in fact, I think it was yesterday's show, was the fact that Crystal Palace were losing a hundred thousand pounds a week, a day, a day. A a day. day sorry, until they made one sale. Yeah, uh, you know, is is football the very? Uh, I don't mean this in a moral sense, but is football now the perfect encapsulation of one percent neoliberal economics? Um, of that kind of you know that that kind of dumb you know domineering kind of rugged capitalism that's about taking you know taking chances and flying by the seat of your pants um it, it, it is to a certain extent but i think you've also got to take into consideration the ownership models in in the sense that 
we we have a proportion of the clubs in the Premier League where breaking even is is a side issue. So you know Chelsea, Everton, Manchester City, probably soon Newcastle, um, Leicester City. So we, we, and to try to fit a traditional economic model to trophy assets and that's what football clubs are is a real struggle and then they're competing against the 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 classic economic models that are being employed by the likes of uh, Spurs and Manchester United and Burnley and so on and some clubs so it's it's literally a, a set of scales and you've got Manchester City where it's like that and you've got Manchester United where it's like that and depending upon where you are as far as an owner you will have a bias towards you know, uh, financial prudence versus sporting survival or sporting success. Um, and that, that for me, is, is intriguing. Um, I, I yesterday, um, and this, this really is a show, and all, all, the, all the research I do is, is off timetable. You know, I, I'm not a research academic. I'm, I'm yeah. a teaching academic. Um, but I, have, I just got this intrigue. I worked out how much money the Premier League clubs generated during the course of the last decade, because I now have the Newcastle and the Palace accounts. I've got everything from 2010 to 2019, and they made a collective return of 0.7%. Now, what other industry, which is so high risk, you could have made more money from sticking it under the sofa, you know, sticking it in, in a crap icer or whatever, but you said to any owners, why are you doing this? You're not making a financial return. They go, well, that's, that's not our problem. With the exception of Manchester United, which, which, is, a, which is a law unto itself. I see, this, is, is the EPL and the Championship, or are the EPL and the Championship busted flushes in terms of economic and fan sustainability? At some um, point, is there, sorry, again, this is the Catholicism coming out again. At some point, is there going to be a reckoning? And I know you don't like doing any, I don't know, you don't like speculating because you're a forensic accountant, but is there going to be a, a reckoning? I, I think it's, it's unlikely. And, and the reason why is that whilst there are enough billionaire suckers in the world, <laughs> there will be somebody else who thinks that they, they've been successful in their own business and they can transfer those skills to owning a football club and if you, you look at some of the people, you know, look at look at Randy Lerner. I was just about um, to say his name. Sorry? I was literally I was literally just about to say Randy Lerner's name. Isn't that a morality yep. tale for our times? <laughs> that, that mean, and at least what a name as well. Um, <laughs> so here he was, an, an an American who thought he could make money out of owning a football club and uh, tried it for the yeah, best part of 10 years. And he, and he, and he literally went home with his, with his tail under his legs, having lost 150 million quid. Ellis Short at Sunderland did exactly the same. Um, and football is littered with very successful people who probably have got egos who think that they, they, know, they know, they have the key. I'm the man. Um, and history proves them to not because the trouble is even if you know the answer if you're competing against 23 people who don't know the answer actually you'll just be drowned uh, by by their ineptitude their their arms race to pay the transfer fees that the club can't afford and the wages that the club can't afford and and, and unless 
if, if, if 24 people are doing the right thing, then the losses in, in, in football would disappear. But because you've got enough idiots who think that they know better and they will use their particular strategy, uh, they, they will uh, get it wrong. Now, being from Merseyside and having worked on the local paper for many years and having a wife who still works on it, I'm acutely aware of the interest that football peaks in certain figures from the underworld. Um, how much of a problem do you think that, and we know the name I'm talking about, and you discussed that name on your show, but how much of a problem do you think money laundering is to in football, both at the top end and right the way down through the pyramid? Um, I think I think in the Premier League it's it's more difficult. Um, certainly, I'm aware of at least one Premier League club historically. In fact, two. Yeah, we we all know about Birmingham uh, and the issues there. Yeah, it was being it was being the club was being abused. You know, there was no there was no culture at the club itself of of, of money laundering, but it had a former owner. Um, I'm aware of another club, a pretty famous club as well, where uh, activities have taken place. It, it's. Isn't there a club, isn't there a, 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 a very, very famous club where one of the leading accountancy firms in the world said, we will never touch that account because we have no idea where the money comes from? Yes, indeed, there is. <laughs> um, the, the lower down the pyramid you go, the more the opportunities are for money laundering. If you go to, if you go to some lower league games, you're going... Well, it doesn't look as if there's 6,000 people here. Um, and literally, you know, money is being passed through, the, you know, effectively passed through the turnstiles uh, for money laundering. Yes, yes, it can work. But it's, it's no more or no less uh, an, an opportunity than, than many other cash-based businesses. Right. And what, what we see now in the Premier League is that we, we've moved to a cashless approach you know, everybody has to buy their tickets in advance. You can't, you can't walk up and pay cash. And that means that the money laundering opportunities are reduced, although you know, sponsorship deals and things of this nature, there, there's, there are potentials for that, but it, it gets more complicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the last question is, I, I'm really fascinated by the way that your podcast has exploded so quickly. Uh, I actually think about it in terms, I was thinking about it when I was preparing the questions, about the sort of ref agenda, that it seems to me almost to be one of the most perfect vehicles for discussing research and to try and deliver some kind of impact. Uh, have, have you thought about it in that way, that as an alternative means? I know you're, saying you're, you're, you're a teaching academic and your research is off the book and off the clock, but have you thought about the impact that you can generate by doing your podcast? Um, yes, I mean, I... I know some of my colleagues, we sort of spoken informally about using it. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of data there. And my, my fervent belief is that as academics, we have a duty to share. So, so my spreadsheet, which is four years worth of work in going into every, every football club in, in, uh, in the, at the 92, going into the Scottish leagues as well. I, I stuck that up on Google Docs couple of months ago at the start of covid to say look folks there's a lot of us being very bored at present uh, here it is um so a, a lot of people have tapped into it um yeah i i, I would i think there's an opportunity there um and you know as a as a non-research academic you know i'm I, I do get fingers pointed at me 
for saying you know, those that can research, those that can't teach. And, and I'm, I'm conscious that there is, uh, there is a hierarchy in academia. And this, this, is, this is an alternative to sort of the, the traditional way of, di- of, of getting information out there. Because, like, you know, your Twitter must be alive with, as, as a kind of back channel to club chairmen and, uh, and finance directors and CEOs. And, uh, and you know, I see you've had Neil Doncaster, a man who's had a very turbulent couple of months uh, in his job. You know, it's interesting that there's this back channel has grown up around the podcast and that, you know, there's, we're beginning to hear about football finance and football governance through an academic and a comedian talking about it. You know, it's, it's a very interesting new set of dynamic networks that have evolved around two people talking to, to cocoa pins stuck with some, stuck together with some string. Um, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, you know, and that, that, that comes at a price because it, in terms of um, the, amount of, t- uh, the amount, amount of research I have to do now to, you know, in order to produce the show, to, to make sure that we get things right. Um, and and yeah, we, we do pride ourselves on that. We, yeah, we've never had to issue an apology. Um, and we've got, we've got, there, there is no partisan, there is no agenda against one club or one individual, with the possible exception of Steve Dale at Berry, who we, we don't like. Um, but then he destroyed a football club. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, 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 it has come at a cost. Um, I've, I've had to defend one lawsuit. Um, from a club owner who didn't like what I said, he, even though I was going, well, uh, what, what I've said has come from your set of accounts. So that, that was relatively easy to defend. Um, we now do get, uh, we get emails and uh, we get, even get phone calls from clubs saying, oh, by the way, we're putting out this piece of information. We think you ought to know. Uh, I.e., they're try- they are trying to, and, and certainly in the book, it says, I, I say that one of the things which always makes me a little bit uncomfortable is when the press release comes out 48 hours before the accounts because they're, they're trying to control the narrative. So, yeah, we, there, there is an awareness that there's an interest in the industry in, in what we're saying. Um, I, I think that they overplay that because ultimately we are just two two old blokes having a grumble most of the time um but uh it's uh it's it's flattering and scary at the same time and uh yeah i I have been upset with some of the comments which have come from people very high in football um which have been critical but when we've got our facts right and yeah that's that that is academics, as we all know. Yeah, and whilst I appreciate that my that my work is not peer reviewed or anything of that nature, it hasn't got that kite mark. It's it, it it uses social media as as a vehicle to get data and information out, and and then uh, yeah, I've somehow managed to I've I picked up a few Twitter followers on the back of that. Um, but I, I try to avoid um, any subjective commentary. It, it it is purely these are the facts. It's up to you to to absorb those facts. If you want further information, I will answer any questions. You know, in professional cycling, there was this phrase that you know, don't don't spit in the soup, or actually, don't piss in the soup, but don't spit in the soup. You know, everyone's doping. Let's keep your mouth shut, saying often Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, rigorously enforced that. Is there an element of that professional football? You know, don't don't you know? We've got a bright red beach ball. Everyone wants to keep floating above our heads. Don't be the guy that drops the beach ball. Don't be spitting in the soup. Um, I, I, I think so. Um, certainly some of the practices, uh, you know, such as in, in 2016, the EFL voted 
to change the rules that allowed um, club owners to sell the stadiums and book the profit and count against financial fair play. Now, nobody was reporting on that. Um, and I, I picked up on it at the time. Um, when, when the Premier League announced the TV deal with Amazon, um, everybody, oh, this is amazing, and so on. On exactly the same day, they changed the, they changed the algorithm for the distribution of monies. And it was only because I am obsessive about the numbers that's go well hold on you've, you've not reported on this and this is implications because this is the rich getting richer the poor getting poorer less money going to efl clubs nobody was reporting that so um yeah i mean my job is, and and the, and the premier league is this very very slick very very smooth running machine and and, and my job is to be the sand in the vaseline <laughs> That's, that's as good a way to place as any to leave it, isn't it? <laughs>